Hi, welcome to the Macabre Emporium. Let me get my emotional support cat. Okay. <laughs> to be quiet and keep the kids quiet, since he was getting anxiety and he didn't want to kill children. Gertrude's daughter even got to join in on what they considered fun. Tell us about the giant turtle. Alan never showed up, nor was he ever heard from again beyond that point. Hello? Okay. Hello. Welcome back to Macabre Emporium. This is episode 30. Dirty 30. <laughs> God, that was fucking perfect timing. What? Did any of that get caught with the dirty 30? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> and if you're some wackadoodle that likes to start in the middle of the pack, welcome. Welcome. Even though this might be the first episode you start if you're a wackadoodle or not. Because some people like to start with the newest one first. Yeah. But anyhow. Yep. And of course, if you heard that, that was the ghostly saying, welcome back to you as well. So last week wrapped up the trilogy that you did on the mm -hmm. Bath Township disaster. And we said that we had actually made a trip out to Bath to visit the museum. You want to talk about what we saw and all that stuff? It was more of an impromptu trip, I guess you could say. I kept him hauling back and forth about going. And, yes, you did. And I'm really glad that we did go. Because after talking to the committee members that actually do run the museum on their own time and they're not paid for it, it's all volunteer. They were actually delighted to hear that people are sharing their story. Yes. Uh, they are looking at building a bath school museum to replicate the bath consolidated slash james calzen agricultural school in a smaller scale on the grounds mm -hmm. and to incorporate part of the foundation of the original school as part as part as the memorial on the grounds which is right across the street where the museum's located inside the lobby of the auditorium of the middle school yep I guess you could say, thankfully, we didn't have any, a whole lot of rain when we went because it made it much easier for us to see it. Because the grass being dried out, the grass on top of what's left of the foundation was actually yellowed because of mm -hmm. the it being, I guess you could say, baked more from being on top of concrete. Yeah. That it made it much easier for us to see how big the school was, the parts of the foundation that still remain. Yeah, like perfect lines. You could mm -hmm. see the outline of the entire thing. If I remember correctly, in my post for episode 29, you can, I posted some of the pictures of where you can see it. Mm -hmm. But one yeah. of the things that they had on display that I didn't bring up because I couldn't find the name of the student that had it was a chair that was carried home by a kindergartner that he didn't even know that he had carried it home until his mother asked him what was going on and why did he have this chair. Yeah, seeing that, it kind of, I mean, it kind of sends sent chills down my body right i don't know if it did you but. and then and then seeing the safe that was there as well too was an interesting thing because i must uh, i'm gonna make the assumption the safe from superintendent hayek's office that i had mentioned in part one i remember correctly mm -hmm. one of the things that him and mr kehoe or, i wouldn't even call it mr mm -mm. well Kim and the bad man as they the committee informed me that they referred to him to the children of Bath when they tell yeah. the story to them or they just playing Kehoe. The one gentleman that was sitting in the chair next to me, not the one that was behind the table, mm -hmm. but the one that was sitting to my left. He actually called him he who shall not be named. No, that's right. I remember him saying like that. Like Voldemort. Right. <laughs> I was like, 
fitting. Right. Yeah. Like I told one of our listeners on Facebook that the probably only thing I would have done differently was gone sooner. What up, do you mean? Gone up there sooner. To the museum itself? Yes. Yeah. Why is that? Just to get a better sense of everything, everything at that point. Yeah. From part two to part three would have given me more of a sense of things. Well, we couldn't have gone sooner. We went the first day that it was open. Well, the first Saturday it, it was open been again. Open uh, special circumstances with the school itself. But... Oh well, I mean, we went as early as we knew we could, which was the right. first public day. So, one of the things that's on display that I didn't post pictures yet, yet I don't think I did, is a willow tree that was made by a class. It was made in 1999 by one of the bath art classes. And each tile hanging off it has a name of one of the victims from the Bath Township disaster on it. Yeah, it was pretty pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. It's all, what is it, like glazed mm-hmm. um, ceramic, basically. Yeah, they're about the size of our cell phones. Yeah. If I remember correctly, most of them were, at least that's what it looked like. Yep. But... It was it a was nice little tribute. Mm-hmm. And then the flag yes, that then, was hanging. Yep. And also they have on display is the flag that was flying over the school on May 18th, 1927. Yep. Which, surprisingly to me, there was like little to no damage done to it just because of concussion blast blowing small pieces of debris out there was like maybe one hole that i saw in Mm -hmm. it maybe yeah but that could be from being in storage or whatnot but and it also could have been hanging like at the opposite end of the school from where the blast actually happened well i don't recall ever seeing a flag in any of the pictures so who knows maybe it hadn't gone up yet well no it said it was it was it said it was hanging so So. yeah i don't know but it was very neat Mm -hmm. um very sad Seeing yeah. the, you know, the desks that they had sat at and right. that little tiny chair right. <laughs> like that, that did me in. But seeing the statue of the girl with the cat, mm-hmm. very cool. Mm-hmm. That very well done. But yeah, I suggest, you know, if you ever find right. yourself up that way, definitely stop because, I mean, it's a part of history. Yep. It's from, they're open all summer long on Saturdays from 10 to 4 p.m. 10 a.m. Yep. to 4 p.m. every Saturday until, like, September, probably when school starts more than Probably, likely. yeah. Um, they also do have a lot of things on sale that, well, they have all the Bath Township disaster books on sale. I now have a pile of them on my desk that I'm probably going to read through just for my own interest at this point. To yeah. Quote, unquote, make myself an expert, I guess you could say. Yeah. But one of the interesting things is, though, the smallest book that I bought that was khaki in color was actually that was written by Monty Ellsworth that I didn't be knowing that I use it as a source a lot because mm-hmm. of it being a timeline by somebody that was actually there. Yeah. He actually wrote that book after a change of heart because he was selling pieces of the Kehoe farm as souvenirs of people that come through to you know, to gawk about it and everything. Mm-hmm. And then he had this change of heart, so he wrote that book shortly after everything and he started selling that instead yeah which i was surprised to find that out in one of the the first book that i bought oh yeah i think it would be interesting reading like for you to sit down and read them all like from start to finish Mm -hmm. and not just kind of right glancing through i guess right but yeah in in a sick twist of fate on our way up there we could see storm clouds rolling in the same go in the same direction we're going the whole time 
Yeah. Which was the weather for that morning, as I brought up in that episode. And also probably just by sheer will of the universe that it took us down Clark Road, which happened to be the road that Kehoe Farm was on. Yeah. Took us past the property that Mm -hmm. he hit, you know, their house had lived on or been on. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, even that's an eerie feeling driving down that road, knowing knowing that that he had driven it often. Right. And it probably hasn't changed a whole lot. No. Really. And it's the proximity to the school. Right. Is insane. So he would have been there within like two minutes. Well, probably longer than that because trucks in those times don't go nearly as fast as cars do now. Well, I mean, the speed limit on the road is only 45. Right. And that was probably like the max speed of the vehicles at the time. I don't yeah. know what the max maximum speed okay, of a so Model we'll, T is. We'll say five minutes. Anyways, it's close to where his, his homestead was. Right. But yeah, it's it's an eerie feeling. But if you don't know what you're looking for or what or it's at on Clark Road, you wouldn't even know what was there or what happened there. No. Although I'm sure anybody that buys anything on that property, be it house, whatever, I'm sure they're probably told like, yeah. hey. <laughs> well, I'm sure they're fully aware of what was originally on that property. You know? Yeah. I'd just be kind of curious to see if we can go out there with a metal detector to see if you can't find anything. Ugh. Shrapnels. That'd be fucking weird too, you know, almost 100 yeah. years later. Before we make this into a part four about bath. Yeah, we're not doing that. <laughs> yeah, so this episode is going to be a little different. This is going to be a first for me. Definitely a first for David. Yeah, because I don't have to do anything this week. Yeah, he's, he's, <laughs> he gets to be lazy bones. I mean, he really poured his, like, being into that Bath Township trilogy. So he's taking a break. He's going to mm-hmm. be my moral support. Yeah, where's your cheerleader outfit? It's in the wash. Oh, well, that's lame. <laughs> Anyways, so I say a first for me because I'm doing a cold case. A woman named Katrina Marshall sent me a message on Twitter with a simple message that said, want to do an episode on my case? And of course, I'm like, your case? You know, of course, I was interested and asked her what it was. She had sent me a change.org link that had basic descriptions of what happened to her maternal aunt in Mm -hmm. Dallas, Texas in 1985. She told me that she really wants to just get the word out there and wants justice for her aunt and for her family since they all fell victim to this starting event, basically, and the investigation around it. Okay. Catherine Diane Mowry, or Katrina, as she was nicknamed later in life, was born to her father, James, and mother, Catherine, February 5th in 1961. She was one of six brothers and sisters, so there was Catherine, Deborah, Joanne, Michael, Jim, and Mark. She had previously lived in Kansas, and while there, had suffered a pretty horrific car accident that left her with a broken back and in a lot of pain, as you can imagine. Back injuries are pretty, Mm -hmm. pretty awful. Due to this, she was prescribed pain medication that she would sometimes share with a friend, and I'll get to that later. Um, Her life was saved by a police helicopter operator named Raymond Kerfoot. He happened to be in the area looking for absolutely nothing when he spotted, like, the... her taillights lit up. Yeah. And, you know, found her overturned car and... 
yeah, she, I don't know if she lost control or what had happened, but she was found um, near railroad tracks, which to me sounds a little bit like divine intervention. I mean, mm -hmm. he was there for, like him and the pilot just so happened to be flying over that area, mm -hmm. heading back to um, the station to refuel. Okay. So, you know, uh, right place, right time, I guess. Yeah. In 1984... Catherine decided that she was going to move for college, and she to and she chose Dallas, Texas, as her destination. Catherine had planned to drive to her sister Deborah's house in Kansas in the middle of June in 1985. However, before the trip, the two sisters had gotten into an argument over the phone, which is a very very sisterly thing to do. Right. Deborah wound up hanging up on Catherine, and even though both sides were extremely angry. Deborah was convinced that they'd make up when Catherine showed up at her door, but that would never happen. Deborah had simply assumed Catherine was still mad and decided last minute that she just wasn't making the trip. A woman who was the manager of Casa Three Apartments happened to walk by an alley on June 15th, 1985, and noticed a very strong smell coming from a 1978 Ford LTD. It happened to be sitting nearby, like off an alleyway, maybe. Naturally, the woman contacted the Dallas Police Department and waited for officers to arrive. When they did, they also verified that they smelled something coming from that vehicle, and they were able to pinpoint it as coming from the trunk. The police were then able to pop the trunk open, and as it opened, they discovered a decomposing body. They reported it as being a white female, nude, and wrapped in a stained bedsheet with a belt around her throat. The body had been taken to the medical examiner, who had to use dental records to identify the woman. That woman was identified as Catherine Diane Mari. Due to the level of decomposition that had already taken place, the examiners were not able to get any concrete markings, like no superficial marks, wounds, anything on the body. Thankfully, they were able to conclude that Catherine had not been sexually assaulted prior to her passing away. Dallas Homicide Sergeant H.M. Rice told the Morning News in 1985, We speculate that she died on somebody and they just got scared and put her in the trunk. It's not going to be classified as a murder because we don't know who put her in there. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I, that's, that's what I said. The police had originally tried to put down the cause of Catherine's death as suicide. Yeah, okay. Give me a fucking break, because there's a belt around her neck. And she's wrapped up in a what? You said a bloody sheet, right? A stained bed sheet. Okay. Yeah. It was later listed as an unexplained death. And it was estimated that her death had occurred only two days before her lifeless body was found on June 23rd in 1985. According to Catherine's sister, Deborah, she and the family were notified of Catherine's passing... According to Catherine's sister, Deborah, she and the family were not notified of Catherine's passing until almost two weeks after she was found. When her body was finally released from custody, the family had Catherine buried in Lawrence, Kansas, where they all were. Catherine's death was never broadcast anywhere besides just locally. Okay. So it didn't even make, like, you know... National news. It did, yeah, it didn't make news outside of her, her area. So anybody beyond that point in Dallas that saw that newscast, like, by them not showing it at least to the entire state, yeah, they're missing out on people that may know what had happened, you know, what had happened to right. her. 
When it was first reported to the media, it was said that Catherine had died because of an overdose. Yeah, an overdose. A sergeant stated it was from cocaine and that there was evidence of it. Her apartment was searched over and they found nothing. There was no forced entry, nothing missing. They did find her packed bags that she was going to take on her trip to her sister's house, um, still packed and sitting by the front door. Investigators turned to Catherine's boyfriend, who owned the car that she had been found in. He said he knew nothing about what had happened, and he didn't even know that she was still in town. The last he knew, she was headed for Kansas, and he didn't even know that his car was missing either, which which wouldn't mean much to him anyways, because mm-hmm. she was known to take his car, you know, when she needed it. The boyfriend had a solid alibi at the time of death, so he was not deemed a suspect at all. Catherine's sister, Deborah reported that the last person she knew of that saw her sister was a close friend uh, known as Pee-wee. Now, Deborah always felt that Pee-wee was part of Catherine's death, but the authorities weren't able to locate or question him, and to this day, his whereabouts are unknown. Which is, you know, a little concerning. Right. It's been believed that Catherine's death was never taken seriously by the Dallas Police Department because of what they called her involvement in the drug scene. Which, in the very beginning, I said that she would, you know, she would allow her friend to have one of her pain pills should they need it. You know? Yeah. That was Pee Wee. So they pretty much labeled her his drug dealer, which is not the case at all. Right. But again, <clears throat> that's what they tried to make it make it sound like. So Katrina, the one that sent me this message on Twitter, she said, My uncle said that at that point in time in the 80s, Dallas was really big in the media for having a lot of drug activity. It seems like they just didn't want any more eyes on them in that negative light, so they were covering stuff up or sweeping it under the rug. Katrina said that investigators had lied to the family and made them believe that they were actually investigating the case, only to find out that this case wasn't being looked into at all. It wasn't, it wasn't touched. Like, they just filed, you know, the bare minimum of reports and that was it for them. Right. This ultimately led to a divide within their family, along with a lot of anger and resentment. Katrina has tried to get information from the Dallas Police Department, and they said they didn't have anything for Maori, which is ridiculous since they literally had to write her name down as they were investigating her death, right? Yeah. However, it came out that they had been misspelling her name wrong. And they were spelling her last name of Maori, which is M-O-W-R-E-Y, as M-O-W-E-R-Y. To me, this shows a severe lack of detail on their part. And in that kind of position, like, you need to be accurate. Yeah. You know? Or at least give a shit enough to be accurate. Because, you know, those... Her name is a big detail. (laughs) You know what I mean? Katrina has her own idea of what happened to her Aunt Catherine. She stated, I'm considerate to the fact that this was a homicide. I say that because of how she was found, naked, wrapped up like a burrito in a bedsheet, along with the fact that she was found across town from where she lived and couldn't have driven by herself there because legally she was blind. Without her glasses or contacts, because both of them were still on the nightstand next to her bed. 
in her apartment right. across town. So she obviously didn't drive herself to that alley. Of course not, obviously, because if she needs one or the other to even see where she's going in her home, she's Correct. not going to be able to drive the other side of fucking Dallas. Correct. Regardless, law enforcement failed to investigate. They failed to bring justice or bring closure closure to my family. And sadly, not only did they possibly let her killer escape, but they also sentenced her sisters to a life of misery. In September 2020... Katrina was able to obtain a copy of Catherine's death certificate, and it clearly stated that the cause of death was undetermined. Yet the family had been told four different causes of death for Catherine. Four. This would be enough to make anyone question the entire investigation, from the body being found the way it was, to the investigators and their lack of investigation, all the way down to the medical examiners. This was and still is highly irresponsible on their parts for doing this to this family. However, now having a copy of the death certificate in hand, questions were still left unanswered, and I can only imagine that more popped up. There were things that were never made known to the family, such as the belt being around Catherine's neck. They didn't know that until they got the death certificate. Katrina is quoted in the Dallas Express paper saying, I think it's a really big detail and a really big indication of, you know, maybe not an overdose or suicide for that matter. She said, she also said, no young woman is going to strip down naked, wrap themselves like a, like a burrito or mummy in a bedsheet, wrap a belt around their neck, and then just sit there and wait to die. It's just so absurd. It's just so absurd sounding. Even just saying it out loud, it's just ridiculous. And I agree. In 2022, Catherine got a copy of her Aunt Catherine's toxicology report and found that there were zero drugs in her system. So, I would like to know where the evidence of cocaine came from, since that's what one of the detectives right. said. Shiny 1980s police work, that's where. I guess, but they, they told her family that she died of an overdose, and toxicology's like, nah, no she didn't. Right. How do you die? How do you die of a drug overdose with no drugs in your system? Shoddy nineteen eighties police work. No, you don't. You just I don't. Get that. By shoddy, I mean absolute fucking shit and just throwing yeah. random fucking causes in there. Yeah, it's yeah. Losing one family member is hard enough, but this family lost a second. Catherine's sister Joanne was murdered in Dallas as well, but in nineteen eighty three. This was more of like a date rape situation. Um, she had her throat slit with a broken beer bottle at a motel a mere five miles from where her sister's body had been found. She was pronounced dead at the scene. The cases were not related and thankfully the person that murdered Joanne was caught and prosecuted. But that, I mean, that's two. Two sisters right. murdered in Dallas, like... I think anybody would try to make those link up. At least I would in my own brain. Mm -hmm. Like, there's just got to be a connection, you know? That's just where my head would go. Katrina has contacted the police department numerous times, but each time she is put off and feels as though they're just talking in circles. And she's actually sent me screenshots of, like, conversations and requests that she has sent the police department. And they literally talk in circles. Like... Oh, we can't do anything here. Call this number. 
and then or like email this this address and she'll contact them and they're like oh we can't do anything here call or email this person and it's just continuous circle of bullshit yeah that's what it sounds like it sounds like almost they're like trying to hopes that you just give up it yeah and she's she's told me that they are extremely hard to get a get a hold of like if you need to call like a victim's helpline whatever that they just don't answer the phone you have to leave a message basically and they'll call you back on their own time like you're fucking up dallas police department yeah and we've already gone over a case of something similar to that oh we're just gonna call you back yeah and then like what happened in san Ysidro because of yeah. some shit like that yeah katrina wrote after numerous attempts to contact communicate request information give information and investigating this case on my own with minimal to no response communication or contact from any of the departments within the dallas law enforcement Within the Dallas law enforcement divisions and departments or governing offices, I'm now forced to take. I'm now forced to make this matter public in hopes of gaining the attention of the higher courts and officials to assist with getting some answers, justice, and most importantly, closure. And make it public, she did. Katrina started the change.org link that I, mm-hmm. you know, mentioned earlier. She started a petition to help spread the word on this case and get more attention in the hope that it would make the Dallas Police Department restart the investigation into what happened to her Aunt Catherine. Since taking this public, she has accomplished what she set out to do. The Dallas Police Department have restarted their investigation into what happened to her Aunt Catherine. There have been podcasts that have put this case back into the air, articles written for newspapers. With that said... There have been a couple of new updates in this case as of Thursday, June 8th, 2023. Oh, wow. Just less than a week ago. The Dallas Police Department officially transferred all of the evidence in the case to the Southwestern Institute of Forensic Sciences Labs for DNA extraction and testing of all of all the physical evidence found on Catherine's body when she died. So Katrina is kind of just sitting in limbo and waiting that they can tell her something she doesn't already know. Right. Dallas Police Department has also made posts on their Twitter with the hashtag Cold Case Tuesday. And in their words, they stated that Catherine was murdered. But she had an overdose, right? Yeah. And it was unexplained, right? Yeah. But yeah. the officers of then are probably no longer on the force now, so... Yeah. I don't. I hope not. <laughs> I and, hope for Dallas's sake. Right. Well, I'm sure they're probably in like higher administrative spots, possibly. But from what it sounds like, officers on Dallas Police Department now are actually trying to do what they're supposed to be doing. I I sincerely hope so. Katrina had no choice but to push hard numerous times to get where she is now, but she's doing it. I hope this continues on and maybe one person has the smallest piece of information that will lead to the person or people responsible for this murder. And I hope that Katrina and her family finally find some peace. This entire family had their lives ruined by the murder of Catherine and how it was handled, and then even more so when they lost Joanne. But one part I haven't talked about yet is journalist Deborah Marshall. She is Katrina's mom and also the sister of Catherine and Joanne. Deborah took the death of her two sisters extremely hard and suffered from PTSD and mental disorders stemming from those incidents happening. 
Deborah received a copy of Catherine's death certificate from her daughter Katrina in 2020. And she was confronted with what she feared the most. The truth that she had known and suspected all along, that her sister's case had not been investigated the entire time, even though the Dallas Police Department made it seem as though they were. Sadly, because of this completely irresponsible and inexcusable move on the Dallas Police Department's account, the gorgeous 57-year-old took her life shortly after learning what she feared the most was true. Katrina was able to access her mom's psychiatric records after she passed away, and it truly showcased how both of her sister's deaths had affected her. I would like to say I can imagine. I can't imagine. Right. Like, to have both of my sisters, like, just have, you know, something happen to them like that, like, that would ruin me. In the article from the Dallas Express I mentioned earlier, it quoted Katrina as saying, They were pretty brutal. There were reports dating 10 years ago, and even after that, instances where she would look in the bathroom mirror and her sisters would be looking back at her and her reflection. It's horrible to think about, really. My mom's mental health eventually deteriorated a lot, especially over the last decade or so, but it started back then, of course. Also quoted from the same article, Katrina stated, I'm not really sure how else they can really take accountability and learn from the mistake. It ruins people's lives. It's still ruining people's lives. It really goes to show just how long victims of homicides and their families really suffer, and that's long after the victims are killed. But Catherine, Joanne, and Deborah are together again, and what you hear next is the voice of Katrina Marshall, the one that originally got a hold of me to see if I was interested in her case, reading what her mom, Deborah Marshall, wrote on October 31st in 2006 as a tribute to her sisters. I was fast asleep, feeling as though I was in a dream, as I was being shaken awake by my oldest sister, Katrina, whom was probably sound asleep over 300 miles away in her trendy Dallas, Texas apartment. Tears of joy filled my surprised eyes as her excited voice rang through my entire body. I was not dreaming. My sister had intentionally made a secret surprise visit home to see me. A sleepy, agitated voice rang out from the other side of the room as my grumpy sister Joanne invaded our happy reunion. The squeals of delight pierced throughout our entire house as she too realized the source of my initial noisiness. As different as my sisters were, they were both indeed my very best friends. Katrina was the oldest of us girls. She was one year older than Joanne, whom was one year older than me as we were the stair step in our six children home. However, the first three were boys. Katrina was my idol, my friend, my hero, and I truly worshiped the ground that she walked on. She taught me so many things about life, love, and compassion with the patience and understanding of a much older, more mature person. When she got excited about something, she had this unique, contagious glow and with a single glance, she could make me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. Joanne was a constant adventure with incredible instincts and intuition, and was quite frankly one of the smartest, most determined individuals I have ever encountered. She was our leader, which was kind of nice because generally her powers of persuasion managed to extricate us from any trouble she may have enticed us into getting into. 
Her spirit and energy were phenomenal, and sometimes just being in her presence could make your head spin. I both adored and admired her, as she brought so much fun and mischief into our world. Katrina and I looked a lot alike. She had dark hair, dark eyes, and an olive complexion. We loved to challenge other partners to card games because we knew one another so well that we could almost anticipate each other's every move. She acted as my labor coach and drove me to the hospital, stopping at the neighborhood convenience store for candy and gum along the way to give birth to my oldest daughter, Sophia. Katrina held my hand as I hesitantly talked to Planned Parenthood about giving my daughter up for adoption. She brought tremendous happiness to my life as we were pretty much inseparable throughout our childhood and teenage years, even after she moved away to Dallas for college. She would still send me a plane ticket or fly back to Kansas herself for a visit. I missed her terribly. Joanne looked quite similar to Katrina and me as well. However, she had a narrower face and paler complexion. She was a free spirit to a certain degree, with her sister-sibling relationship being the one exception. We three sisters had a bond stronger than any adhesive ever marketed. Joanne's mind stayed about 10 steps ahead of any and everyone around her. She was quite simply brilliant. This sister also jumped into action and sent beautiful roses and then boarded a plane because she too had moved to Dallas to come to Kansas the minute I went into labor with Sophia. One other person and I were permitted to hold my daughter before turning her over to state authorities. Joanne and I held her as we smiled through our tears. She made sure I was able to get photos of Sophia, which then sustained me for the next 18 years until we were reunited. Katrina was brutally murdered in 1985. She was identified by her dental records, and I was 21 years old at the time. It happened in Dallas, Texas. She was discovered by the stench coming from a car parked in an alley. She was naked and wrapped up in a sheet. Her murder has remained unsolved to this day. I cannot even begin to describe the pain and agony I felt. Actually, this is the first time I really wrote about this, and I can feel the struggle even now, 21 years later. I still truly miss her every single day. Joanne was brutally murdered in 1993. Ironically, this happened in Dallas, Texas as well, and I was 31 years old at the time. Fortunately, an arrest was made within a couple of days because the hotel room that the suspect had murdered her in was actually registered in his name. It was a date rape type of situation. He had beat her up with a beer bottle, which he eventually broke and slit her throat with. The Dallas district attorney said the autopsy pictures were some of the worst that she'd ever seen in her 10 years with the district attorney's office at that time. My already battered spirit was broken down even further for numerous years after this, if not for the responsibility of caring for my own little two-year-old Katrina. I honestly do not believe that I would be here sharing this story with you today. 
it was an incredibly tough time for me. My sisters, however, in different ways, defined so much of my life. I often feel like a fish out of water, just floundering around this world without them. Although Joanne did get a chance to meet my little Katrina, whom is a living tribute to my oldest sister, both of them were gone before my reconciliation with my oldest daughter, whom they had both loved so wholeheartedly. That's one of my biggest regrets. I went back to Kansas last March, and both of my daughters and I spent one entire beautiful afternoon at the cemetery with my two very different, yet very specially loved sisters. In closing, I would like to thank Katrina for reaching out to us and for all the pictures and information that you have sent about your family. I sincerely hope this gets all the attention needed to finally correct the case. If you have any information regarding this case that you can share, please contact Cody Clark, number 10506, Detective Special Investigations Unit and Homicide, at 214-671-3661, or by email at cody.clark at dallaspolice.gov. And if needed, a good way to get a hold of someone for information would be to contact Katrina herself. She gave me permission to give her Twitter handle out, and it is KatrinaMarsh91. Please check out our website at macabreemporiumpodcast.com. Join our Facebook group by searching Macabre Emporium. Like and subscribe on YouTube at Macabre Emporium Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Macabre Emporium. And if you have any stories of the paranormal, your local true crime, or weird history that you would want us to look into and possibly do an episode on, email us at macabreemporiumpod at gmail.com. Remember to follow, rate, like, review, and share whenever and wherever you can and help us grow our little baby podcast.